Hello, I'm Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin, clinical psychologist and child psychotherapist. Welcome to Talking Child Development, the podcast of the Association of Child and Family Development in Melbourne, Australia. The association is a not-for-profit organisation that aims to disseminate information about all aspects of child and family development to other professionals and to the wider community. In these podcasts, we will be going a little deeper into the whys and wherefores of child, adolescent and family life. We want to get away from a focus that's purely behavioural and quick fix-based to delve more deeply into issues and ask questions about why things happen in families the way they do. You can find more information on our website at www.acfd.com.au where you will also be able to access all the references mentioned here. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Jordan Foster, who will be talking about cyber safety. Jordan is a clinical psychologist and the founder of WhySafe. She is recognized as one of Australia's foremost cyber safety experts and was the winner of the 2020 Telstra Women in Business Award and the 2018 Western Australia Young Achiever Award. Her company, YSafe, has provided online safety education to half a million students, families, and school staff Australia-wide. Jordan received the Business Award for her pioneering work in the field of cyber safety. Jordan has extensive clinical expertise in working with children and adolescents managing problematic technology use, including cyberbullying, image-based abuse, and internet gaming addiction. She provides empirically derived cyber safety education and assistance in identifying cyber incident response processes and management strategies in this area. Welcome, Jordan. I wonder if we can start with talking about how you got into this area of cyber safety as a clinical psychologist. Hi, Ruth. It's it's a funny question because it's it's always quite shocking when people hear that I'm a clinical psychologist and I work in cyber safety and tech. They they're very confused as to how I landed in that area and which one sort of came first. Um, how I got into it was a number of different variables all sort of coinciding at once. So I when I was in high school, I was really interested in psychology and felt that I wanted to go down that path. But it also so happened that when I was in high school and my final years of high school, social media started to become a really big phenomenon, particularly Facebook. Um, but I was noticing a lot of my, my friends and peers were running into issues with cyberbullying and, and peer pressure online to send explicit images and, and all the sorts of things that we kind of see now. And so my father was a police officer and I used to have a lot of conversations with him about these, these topics but I didn't have any interest in pursuing that in a professional sense. It was just my lived experience at the time. And then when I was studying my postgrad and picking my, my thesis topic, I was really interested in cyberbullying as a topic. Um, and it was quite, it was quite new as a, as an area of interest, not, not groundbreaking, but in terms of prevalence, it was quite new. And so some of my professors, when I posed the topic, to them kind of went, why? I went, well, I just, I think that it's a growing space. And so I, I would like to do some research there. So I did uh, my, my postgrad research in cyberbullying and the relationship with attachment relationships and self-esteem. And then at the same time, I was also working in a local council, local government, and it was part of my job role was to do an assessment of the community in terms of their projected concerns as as a family unit and for young people. And the number one topic that came out for families, but also for young people, was that of cyber safety and and subtopics in cyber safety. And so all of those things really culminated in my increased interest in the space. But then I started working um, at Headspace contracting as a clinical psych. And I was just known in WA in particular as the person, the, the, the clinician that had experience in, in cyber topics. And so I would get referrals for, for teenagers in particular that were always around cyber-related issues. Mm-hmm. And 
the reason I started YSAFE was because I was seeing so many kids in therapy that were presenting with these types of issues. And when I was engaging their families about it, they had no idea what these topics were, what they meant, what was happening. So I started the company just to bridge the knowledge gap for parents to say, this is what kids are exposed to online. This is the digital world that they're currently living in and how they operate in that world. And here's, as a parent, how you can engage your child around this topic in a way that's going to promote your relationship development in this area, but how do you support them? Um, and that that's really sort of all those factors coming together was my interest. And then it was such a needed space that it went from me just going out and talking to parents and educating them to growing into an international company that we now speak with um, students, parents and staff. And really what's unique about YSAFE is that we still maintain that approach of that's embedded within psychological literature about the social and emotional and behavioural elements of cyber safety as opposed to the tech side is what I would consider it to be. Um, and it's a very, I think it's a very needed um, approach because it is so embedded in young people's lives, but it's not just about do this and don't do this and turn on privacy settings. It's teaching them adaptive skills about interpersonal functioning online and emotion regulation in regards to online issues that they might be facing. So it's it's been an unexpected evolution of my career, um, but, but a really natural fit at the same time. It's, it's absolutely fascinating and, and so needed. Um, I mean, one of the things that strikes me very much is that there's such a gap in terms of what parents can teach their children because the children can teach their parents about technology. It's a huge gap for parents and parenting. So the kind of work that you're doing is absolutely crucial. And I'm just wondering, you know, given, as you say, we hear so much about social media and technology and its impact on vulnerable young people, and how do you believe that social media and technology potentially exacerbate existing mental health conditions? I guess that's very relevant in COVID times because of all the things we've been through. Yeah, absolutely. There's a few interesting trends that we've seen really during COVID and then post-COVID. So technology and social media, to be very clear, can certainly exacerbate mental health um, experiences, distresses, um, reactive mental health issues. It can also support uh, young people who might be experiencing mental health issues as well. So just to, to think about both sides of the coin there. Unfortunately, globally, we saw during COVID and, and post-COVID uh, and lockdown, we saw huge increases in cyberbullying, in particular globally, uh, online conflict, and that was in relation to not only peers that knew each other, but also cyberbullying from sources that were unknown to the victim. So just general online trolling increased. We also saw an increase in the distribution of, we call it child exploitation content, but we might consider it for, for teenagers in particular, sending and receiving nudes. But then those particular images being used for um, revenge porn type cases where there was blackmail or it was used in a way that would cause distress to a, to a young person. But primary school or elementary school age children, we saw an increase in their exposure to inappropriate online content and namely in regards to pornography. So unintentional exposure to distressing adult content and having to manage the fallout from that. And then other broader cyber, cyber safety issues, we saw a significant increase in the distribution of child exploitation content between online predator rings. It, it was just all going and continues to go in the wrong direction. So young people, and these are broad topics, we can also see some alarming trends in sort of nuanced behaviours as well that are occurring online. But unfortunately... COVID didn't have a positive impact on, on young people who are already suffering from, from mental health. We've seen um, in Melbourne, in Sydney and over in the US, a, a significant increase in young people presenting to emergency room. Now, that's not directly related to social media per se. Obviously, there's a lot of contextual factors that, that um, influence that. But interestingly, we've seen reports for young people that in COVID times and even with access to social media, they still felt a distressing level of loneliness, which was commonplace in 
young people presenting to emergency rooms was that sense of loneliness and, and the impact or the interplay with that with, with existing mental health um, symptomatology. So social media really is so embedded in a young person's life. I'm reluctant to say that it has a direct causal relationship in many ways. However, in certainly exacerbating existing conditions, we, we see it time and time again. And, and what would you say are the current trends we're seeing in social media and gaming platform use? I mean, I get a bit alarmed sometimes when I hear about very relatively young children already gaming online. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how long do we have? I can tell you all about it. But the hmm. younger children, and when I say young children, I'm talking specifically about primary age children, we're seeing increased time spent online, increased relationships um, and interactions with, with strangers, and unfortunately we're seeing increased cyberbullying and online conflict occurring for primary-age children. We would we hypothesise that all of those factors are related to access to devices at an earlier age and then limited supervision by parents from a lack of understanding. So kids are being exposed to these things because... They have access to devices, usually because the school mandates it under a BYOD program or a one-to-one program, so not because parents are necessarily choosing it, but then also parents not realising that actually a seven-year-old can be exposed to pornography online and, and not having mechanisms in place to stop that from happening from sheer lack of awareness. Other trends that we're seeing that are quite harrowing, particularly in relation to teenagers, is around consent and the distribution of, of nude images um, or we call it image-based abuse from a legal perspective in Australia. Um, but there was a report that was recently um, distributed by, it came from, from WA in particular, from the Commissioner of, of Children, and it found that I think it was 12%, 12% of, of teenage girls had felt pressured online by a stranger to send a nude image. So there's a lot going on in regards to the normalisation of this idea that teenagers need to be distributing photos of them online and really getting pressured to do so. So we are currently focusing a lot of our education attempts on talking about what consent is in particular and its relationship with peer pressure and and that kind of thing. Um, One of the other really interesting trends that we're seeing at the moment, and, and it's so new that we're yet to see data coming from this it's more of an anecdotal trend but is young people self-diagnosing with mental health issues because of content that they see online and so what that looks like is predominantly happening on TikTok and Instagram but a person might it happens in one of two ways a person will either talk about their own mental health diagnosis whether they've actually received one formally or whether it's self-diagnosed is it's hard to determine but they will talk about their experience and their symptomatology and then young people will relate their own experience to what that person is saying so there's this sort of uh, phenomenon there that a person is being validated by someone else's mental health disorder by what they're hearing and so then a young person will identify with that or alternatively there's a big trend on TikTok in particular that people are saying if you experience this 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 and this then you have undiagnosed anxiety or undiagnosed bipolar disorder Um, but as you can imagine bipolar disorder is a really great example where we as clinicians know the very specific details of what the dsm or the icd will say is um, indicative of potentially a diagnosis of bipolar disorder however young people will often say if you have fluctuations in mood which is very non-specific and also quite uh quite universal for all teenagers who are going through significant hormonal changes but there are people who are not clinicians they are not they don't have any professional background who are saying if you have this this and this you could have undiagnosed bipolar disorder or you could have schizophrenia that's undiagnosed or you could have um, social anxiety and so young people are seeing that and going oh that's my experience that must be me And it's a really challenging predicament for a parent to find themselves in when a a child says, well, I've got this because I read it online and then confirmation bias comes in, of course, and they seek out the information that supports that that self-diagnosis and then parents don't know what to do with that. Um, 
I've saw I've saw recently a, a parent what they contacted me saying something similar had happened, but in regards to questioning gender identity and their child was going through, I think a, a change in terms of their identity formation as all teenagers do. But they essentially were being groomed by a person, quite a radical person online, about saying you are in the wrong body. You are a boy and if you're, you know, a girl and, and not to provide significant amount of detail. But it was very aggressive in the way that this person was telling that child what their experience was and they were very confused by it. And so the parent didn't know how to approach that situation because they wanted to support the child exploring that. But if they suggested that maybe that's the person online wasn't, you know, their best interest wasn't at heart, it was really it was there was a lot of resistance there so kids are getting a lot of misinformation online about mental health issues about normal developmental stages that we might see for kids but that's being pathologized in a way by people who don't actually have any sort of background um in in mental health child development so kids are learning about themselves in in a forum that's not necessarily correct or healthy I think that is so important because you echo something that um, uh, a colleague I spoke to for one of the podcasts, we were talking about adolescence in general, and she's an adolescent psychotherapist working in the UK. And she said exactly the same thing, that um, uh, young people seem to unite around their symptoms. Mm -hmm. And all of, well, not all, but most of these symptoms are all about ordinary normal development that they are also about human existence. You know, all humans feel sad and upset and angry and worried at various times. But some of these young people pull out these symptoms and see them as uh, being a symptom of that is very special or exceptional to them, or it's a sign of specific psychopathology, and it couldn't be further from the truth. And then they seem to want to acquire that kind of identity, which, you know, rather than normalizing, they want to acquire a psychopathological identity. And then I think there's another element from what you're saying, which is that the, the technology is so all-pervasive and so powerful that the locus of authority, parental authority, shifts. So it shifts away from parents towards this amorphous, really, technological space, you know, whether it's TikTok or Instagram or whatever it is, you know, that is the authority. And so the young person can hit parents over the head with that. And it's terribly important for parents to stand their ground and say, hang on a minute, I'm the person in charge here. You know, authority rests really with parents um, and not with TikTok. You know, so, so parents need a lot of help with this, don't they? Oh, they really do. And one of the, um, this is part of, when we go in and talk to, to parents in schools, it's not just about teaching them about social media it's about teaching them how they can communicate and approach the conversation with kids because there is so much resistance and as you mentioned the authority very much is perceived by young people as being you know the the people that they follow the people that they find inspiring the people who are putting these messages out and then in the comment section there's all of these other large-scale audience supporting that message so you can understand why a young person says oh yes you must be very knowledgeable in, the, in this topic or this space because not only are you, I'm connecting with what you're saying on a platform that I engage with and I'm trusting, but also I can see that this video has 50,000 likes. So I'm validated by other people's um, interaction with that post. But with parents, <laughs> the approach that I often encourage them to take is not to, you, you're right, Ruth, in that they need to have a strong voice. And I think a lot of parents feel that they're not, they don't have the confidence to do that because it's not a space that they're familiar with. I like to remind parents that you are still a parent and these are still parenting topics. So if a child comes to you and says, I think I have X, Y, Z, you wouldn't just take it as gospel and say, okay, that's great. Uh, you would work through it with your child. The additional challenge that we find is that kids, are they minimise parents' knowledge if it comes from social media because they don't think that a parent understands social media and therefore how can a parent assess the credibility of something that comes from there on a platform that they don't understand? So parents can't really win. So one of the things that I like to encourage parents and schools in particular to educate kids on is seeking out credible information, having a, a healthy level of scrutiny about any content that you see on social media. 
social media all operates in an echo chamber. So you are only presented with the information that you actually already believe or value. And social media knows what you believe and value based on who you follow, what content that you're engaged with, your, your activity in terms of likes and things like that. So you are only presented with one version of reality. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the correct one either. And so I like to teach all families, all kids, all parents to encourage kids to go and seek information in a holistic type of way. Have a look at different sources that might contradict what you actually think, but see if you can paint a bigger picture about what might be going on here. The reason that I tell parents to do that is because if a parent just says, no, that's not right, that's going to be quite jarring for the relationship if the child doesn't agree. So instead of saying, no, you don't have that, or no, that's you've just got that off TikTok, it doesn't make any sense, use that as a mechanism to go and say, well, let's, that sounds really interesting. Why don't we go and have a look online and we'll look at some credible sites and see what else we can find about it, see if you're right. And if you are, we'll go and seek help for it. But if not, we'll see if we can find another explanation. So instead of being very binary and yes or no, right or wrong, use it as a, as a way to explore um, more broadly with the child because then you're going to be able to roll with that resistance instead of being faced with it. Sure. I mean, and the other thing I just wonder about, we're talking about the 50,000 likes <laughs> and a lot of them, from what I understand, are what they call bots. Yeah. So they're not real. A lot of these, yeah. a lot of these likes or these 50,000 friends, followers or whatever, they, 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 they are not real people. Is, is, are young people aware of that? Uh, yes and no. So young people are very aware of bots. <laughs> they mm. know what they are. They know why they exist and they know how to spot them. Um, bots are quite prevalent on any social media platform that has a commercial element associated mm. with posts. So Instagram, for example, where you might get paid for having more followers or paid for um, likes on a particular post, bots are can be used in order to drive engagement so then the commercial side of that is is heightened um instagram are pretty good at knowing where bots are so they know genuine activity from from artificial activity and kids are aware of it if they go and look into it it's quite easy to spot a bot but it requires a child to actually look into it they're not necessarily incentivized to do that when there's a post that has fifty thousand likes they don't it's not important to them whether they're bots or not. So they won't seek out that information. And otherwise, if they don't seek it out, it's not, it's not visible necessarily. Um, so they know they have the skills to be able to identify it, but they don't have the motivation necessarily to, to scrutinise whether that's the case or not. Yes, I can see that's a problem. And, you know, just, uh, just another question, which to some extent we've, we've covered a bit, but what do you think are the greatest risks being posed to primary and secondary age children in relation to technology? And also that we seem to be seeing younger and younger children drawn into this. It's a great question. I think one of the risks that I can see that I'm very worried about moving forward, and we're on the precipice of this as a risk, but it's growing quite rapidly, is artificial intelligence and VR and, and, and synthetic intelligence, so synthetic media. So what that is is media that is completely manufactured and fake. So we might consider that as a deep fake, for example. A deep fake is a video or a picture or it could be an audio file that has been completely manipulated to the point where it's not real. So you could take my face, for example, and put it on a, a video that's, that's pornographic. And so it's someone else's body, but it's my face and the and, likeness. And your though, voice as well, I think, can be you. It can be my voice, yes. Mm. If there's the more media that you could access of someone, the more likeness that you can then generate. So if you've got videos of people on YouTube or on podcasts, for example, where they can create a big media library of one person, then a network can be created of those data points and then that can be manipulated. So absolutely, you can have um, a video of, um, of a person in a pornographic video or it could be something fun. It could be more like a music video and that kind of thing, but they're used for sinister reasons. The reason I find that really problematic is not only for the victim where their face or likeness has been used without consent, 
But these videos are becoming more and more sophisticated. The software itself is free and kids are very tech literate and they're learning coding in school. It's not a far cry for them to use this type of software. We think that it is, but it really isn't. My concern is that we don't have the technology at the moment to detect a deep fake very accurately, which what that means then is kids require the skills to really assess the, the credibility, the, the, the objectiveness of, of media content, which at the moment they don't. And also if we think about normal developmental sort of presentations, we can see that kids are very emotionally reactive. They like to distribute content that's evocative. So if they see a post of a, of a, of a peer that might be inappropriate, they will share that on not scrutinising that that might actually not be a genuine piece of media and it might not be them. And the impact that this can have, I think, on our understanding of facts, of our understanding of credible sources, that is already problematic. We already see that young people are not very efficient at, at understanding what's a credible or factual source and what is not. It's only going to be exacerbated. And then the other concern that I have is with VR technology, so VR technology in particular is becoming more and more sophisticated. We're seeing there's been a big explosion with VR technology with, and VR means virtual reality for anyone who, who isn't aware, um, with games. So essentially a, a player will put a headset on that has a visual and an audio component to it and they can play the game in a very immersive way. Now, that is going to very much drive user engagement and time spent on gaming platforms. We're already seeing that a lot of young people in Australia are suffering from early stages of, of problematic gaming use or, or gaming addiction. But based on how we, our brain responds essentially to VR, is because it's such a more immersive experience, it was going to be, my, I predict that it's going to be a lot harder for young people in particular who already have tendencies for problematic gaming to get off this particular technology platform because it is so immersive. Not only that, we do see young people with gaming addiction or problematic gaming behaviours start to embed other areas of their life and other parts of their social needs, for example, within uh, the internet so that their needs are delivered via other platforms online. So what I mean by that is their friendships are also their social needs are occurring online in terms of their friendships, but also their sexual relationships occurring online. There's a high comorbidity between young people presenting with gaming addiction and pornography addiction or problematic behaviours because all of those human needs can be delivered by an online source except for perhaps food. Uh, VR is only going to make that worse because if I can, for example, uh, see my friends in VR and also have sexual relationships via VR because not only is it an immersive experience, but they also have products to support physical interaction support delivered through um, that immersive technology experience. What do I need? Why do I need to get off screens? Absolutely. It's a, it's a terrifying, it's, you know, brave new world, which has been said before, but it's a it's not a brave new world, it's a bit of a horrendous new world, um, which really completely destroys the nature of human interaction and, and, and the, 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 the entire sort of human interactive process. I mean, it does sound very, very disturbing. I mean, it's disturbing on, on a developmental level, individual developmental level. It's terrifying on a political level because um, all kinds of terrible things can come out of the mouths of our leaders, you know, mm. so they can be sort of reinvented in that way. But I wonder, given the seriousness of this, what are your views about um, uh, control and actually um, having some way, I, I don't know, policing may not be the right term, but it's a, it's a kind of wild west. It's more than a wild west. It's as though the, just because technology works or is available, it must be used and we must be able to get hold of it. What kind of restrictions or protections do you think should be put in place, if any? A, a lot. <laughs> there's a, there's, globally, we implement restrictions in a way that's very segmented. Um, I suppose that's just how the political systems work, um, generally. 
um, across the globe. However, what that means then is that there's different regulations in different areas where then what that results in social media gaming platforms sort of being very reactive in what they do, but they're never proactive in how they create their platforms for safety. And I think that that comes down to they're not held accountable to creating the platform for safety from the get-go. They're reacting to a regulatory requirement. Um, In Australia, there have been some changes recently in regards to regulation for social media platforms. The Office of the eSafety Commissioner have been afforded powers to fine social media and gaming platforms for not dealing with cyberbullying and image-based abuse targeted to young people. I think that's very helpful. Um, Scott Morrison has recently introduced some legislation around trolling and the requirement for social media platforms to collect personal data about trolling. I don't think that will work because a lot of trolls won't actually include their personal information when they sign up to a platform they'll use fake data. So to me, that's just a Band-Aid fix for a political campaign. Um, In terms of what we need to do, I find that question is, is very, there's so much that we need to do. I think uh, the first place it needs to start is big tech. We don't, we focus a lot on social media platforms and not on the operating systems that provide the mechanism for them to distribute their services through. One of the things that I find extremely concerning is for, you'll see um, Apple and Google are are really big culprits for this, is at the age of 13, uh, so Apple and Google allow a child a parent to enforce parental control settings on devices. But once a child turns 13, Apple and Google clearly state in their T's and C's that now the child has the right to dissociate themselves from their parental control settings and it's up to them whether they choose to be influenced by their... I don't know in what world how they decided or how they have the power to decide that 13 is the age for a child to consent to their own online experience and whatever that may be outside of their parents' jurisdiction. Who decided that that was an age that was okay? Um, I think there's no regulation around big tech um, stopping safety settings and third-party providers from actually enforcing or allowing parents to enforce certain settings on devices, which means that kids can access pornography, which kids can mean that kids can bypass parental control settings. So the devices themselves aren't safe. So I think there needs to be regulation around how big tech actually sets their devices up and allows parents to to demonstrate control over those devices is is really important. Social media platforms then is a whole nother, and gaming platforms is a whole nother ballgame. What I really appreciate from the Office of the eSafety Commissioner is that they're having a big push for these platforms to consider safety by design. So instead of reactive measures for safety, how are you actually, as I mentioned earlier, setting, setting it up? One of the things to me that is very much missing from these platforms is age verification. Uh, we know that a lot of young people are using social media platforms who are under the age of 13 in Australia. In fact, we can see roughly 55% of 10-year-olds are actively using social media, which a lot of parents don't realise, because nothing stops them from signing up. Nothing enforces an age verification process. And so young kids are being exposed on these platforms to online strangers and grooming or inappropriate content, and there's no enforcement of, of age verification. So I think that that's part of the picture. It's not a silver bullet because there are ways that you can bypass age verification, um, but at least it's a it's a step in the right direction. Uh, and then I think just general regulation on certain behaviours um, for, for social media and gaming platforms, namely around image-based abuse, namely around the distribution of child exploitation content. I think we're stepping in the wrong direction in terms of how we police that because of the increased prioritisation of encryption undermines policing's ability to actually uh, track the distribution of child exploitation content I think is really alarming. And then the way that we deal with very serious cyberbullying, how we identify those people, how we remove people's accounts and minimise their their ability to continue to, to attack people online. There's so much that can be done from a legislative perspective, but then also from a tech perspective as well. There's no accountability for any of these things. There's no accountability. And, I mean, profit is the main motive. It it reminds me of that terrible, those those feeble ads about um, which promote gambling and uh, and betting. And then when they finish the ad, a voice says, gamble responsibly 
or there's a little phrase that says gamble responsibly, as though they sort of just regurgitated that up at the last minute because someone has forced them to do it. They're not interested in it. They only want the money. And the same applies. I think think it's an absolute, it seems to to me to be a destruction of childhood. I think it really destroys the actual opportunity for children to discover things at their own pace in, in real developmental terms and time and imposes that it sort of tears them apart and imposes something that is so very, very, very disturbing. And governments are pathetic. I mean, they're not doing very much about it. And I wonder whether the big change has to come from people themselves, from parents, from communities, whether people just have to rise up and say this is enough. You know whether there would be in whether there would be sufficient collaboration between people to be able to do that because it's it's extremely disturbing. Uh, I absolutely agree, Ruth. And I I'm usually a bit I'm I'm a glass half full kind of person, except for perhaps something like this where I think that the biggest barrier for communal activism in this space is sheer lack of awareness and I've been in this space for eight years advocating these messages and talking to parents and providing them a direct route to to credible information in this area and we still in terms of the people who show interest in this area I would say on average it's about 10 to 15 percent of the parent community in a school so the awareness in this space is what is lacking in terms of having that impact that you're talking about. I think if the awareness was there, there are few parents that I have ever met that kind of minimise the impact of this or don't care, but they don't know. And so that's a, it's a tough thing to, um, well, to try I'm and rectify. I'm not sure I would agree with that. I don't think it's about not knowing. I think it's about wanting to be in denial because they themselves... <laughs> of the users of the same technology, which they don't want to give up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think people are unaware. I think I also think that there is a, le- a level at which there's parental responsibility is involved and where people sidestep that, in, mm-hmm. where some parents literally sidestep ownership and responsibility and yeah. becomes really, I, th- I think it needs to move into a sort of child protective element perhaps yeah. to be taken really seriously. Oh, I, I agree. And I think, look, I think you're right. I do think there, the denial is is a certainly a big component of this, is choosing not to listen um, or choosing not to increase their own awareness around it as well. I think it's twofold. So choosing not to find that information and choosing not to believe it if it's too scary or doesn't suit them. Um, uh, I think I, I've, I'm, I'm, I am hopeful for a new generation of parents coming through who have the millennial parents who are now having kids that are sort of entering into primary school who they have grown up as digital natives themselves. And so I think that there's a sentiment that it's not as scary or overwhelming as what the kind of existing generation of parents with teenagers are because they didn't grow up with it themselves and therefore it's too much for them to try and figure out and therefore it's a little bit harrowing and therefore I don't want to deal with it. So I I do wonder from a community perspective if there will be change that naturally comes from that familiarity with, with technology. I do think from a political perspective it's not. We've been, in fact, working with the Australian government on trying to instigate some reform in this area and I have to say my personal experience with with trying to work with government is that they like the idea but it's not a priority it's not a priority to try and regulate social media or big tech um, at the moment because it's such a big task and so these micro actions keep occurring but until that there's a sort of a global task force there are global task force that deal with specific parts of cyber safety and one of the, the main ones is, is child exploitation content, which I think is incredibly important. So I'm, I'm glad that there are global task force on that, that particular area. But otherwise, it doesn't really exist in any other aspects of, of cyber safety. Um, I think there's a long way to go. You, you see, it's interesting. I mean, I totally agree with that. But you're talking about child exploitation, which is at the 
top end or the very, very sharp end, and it's a relief that that is being dealt with. But everything you've said so far about how young people get um, lured and seduced into that whole cyber world, that is the, that is the preventative end of it. Yeah. The police force are dealing with the end result of it. But yeah. there's got to be, as with all things to do with development and so many other issues, there's very little focus on prevention. Mm-hmm. And in a way, young people, I think, I think the other main factor is that there's very little focus on being self-critical and having a critical awareness for, for children and young people of themselves and the world around them, which mm-hmm. they absolutely need, and, and a level of being able to be self-protective. So there's a lot of emphasis that needs to go in at the, at the um, uh, preventative end. But I think just moving into a milder area, which <laughs> is that looking at your work um, and your experience in working with schools, I wonder what you think of computer use for children from an early age in the educational setting. And I've often wondered whether teachers and schools may believe that computer use provides some sort of magical tool for learning. And is that actually the case? With People have different opinions about this in a schooling environment. So some teachers, there is some research to show that there are aspects of learning that can be enhanced by technology use. And by and large, the research suggests that attitudes, a student's attitude towards learning is enhanced if it's delivered by a technology use. That's probably not particularly surprising. And so technology can be a a great mechanism for engaging students and particularly students who otherwise are at risk of being disengaged with learning outcomes. However, I don't think, again, this is just purely anecdotal. We work in about 500 schools across the country um, and about 40 school districts over in the US, which they're a a group of schools underneath that. Uh, Some teachers hate having to use technology and some teachers embrace it. And there's a lot of variance within a school about how much adoption of technology is actually occurring. I find that it's driven usually by the individual teachers themselves. Some teachers do think everything should be done via a device and some teachers think that nothing should be done via a device. But the other factor that comes into account is twofold. One is what school leadership say that that schools and teachers are required to do. But the other is the availability of the learning content and the learning resources. If there is a push for companies to start delivering uh, learning content online, because it's a more scalable commercial model for them, then they're in a way forcing schools to start to adopt that further because that's the delivery method for them. So it's not attitude is part of it, but the the way in which that schools are being forced to access this is, is another. My personal opinion is that it comes down to balance. Um, if we have a steadfast no approach to tell to tell tell kids that this is not the the right way to learn i mean that's not what's recommended in in literature anyway but what we do is create this sentiment around technology that has a negative connotation to it and so that's not empowering for young people and if we completely adopt all learning within a technological sense then not only does the research not recommend that either, but we're not teaching kids other skills that are really important that can't necessarily be delivered via the mode of, of technology. So to me, finding that balance is really important. Uh, the, other, the other really important topic for me as an expert to, to encourage people to think about is the use of technology in school, but how that then that translates into the home environment. Because what can happen a lot is schools will provide a child with a BYOD device um, or enforce policy around that or a one-to-one device. And then some schools require the, the child to take that device home. When we can maximise the benefits of technology use in a learning environment, but what then happens if that device is used for a a leisure capacity, if you will? The age comes into play there a lot because what we tend to see at the moment, at least in Australia, is that 
kids are using devices for personal reasons at a younger and younger age because they have access to an iPad, for example. They're very excited by it. And parents sort of say, well, I didn't buy this for you, but I'm just going to let you use it because you're excited and I can't be bothered dealing with the conversation of you saying it's up there, it's in there, can I use it? I just want an hour. And we're letting kids access technology from a leisure, personal perspective at a younger and younger age, which isn't necessarily recommended. Um, and that's where I think there's a big, there, that, that spillover between the education setting and, and home life creates a situation where there's a lot of cyber safety risk associated with that. Yes, I, I think that's a very, very important point. Um, I think the, the other question I wanted to ask, which you may already have covered, is the question of message encryption proposed by Apple that will influence the distribution of child exploitation content and the potential implications of this encryption? This, every expert globally that I connect with and has voiced their dire concern over the move towards encryption, the Office of the East Asia Commissioner, Julie Ingram Grant, is very adamant that this is not something that is in support of child safety. However, big tech is dictating the direction that this is going in and what services are rolled out to their, to their consumer base. What they are doing is prioritising, I guess to back up, I should explain, encryption is important for the purpose of security. So encryption in terms of messaging provides everyday consumers like me, like you, like anyone who's listening, the ability to be further protected from cybersecurity risks like hacking. It also helps companies be protected because encryption means that it's very difficult for um, outside forces, if you will, to hijack the content that's being sent across. It also means that depending on the level of encryption, that my identity is protected when I send you something. From a cybersecurity perspective, all consumers benefit from, from extra protection from hackers and scammers. But where that under, what that undermines is our ability as law enforcement to detect the distribution of child pornography, so child online exploitation content, and then also the identities of the people who are sending and receiving it. So police will be completely disempowered to stop the distribution of incredibly traumatising and, and detrimental content that these children are involved in. It will also mean that there will be less ability to press charges against people who are sending and receiving this content, which in turn will mean that it's easier for the content to be distributed, which then likely will increase the demand. And then obviously that increases the supply. This It's, it's absolutely detrimental. And I, I'm getting a little bit more personal about this as I talk about it, but I just cannot believe that we live in a world where consumer protection is prioritised over something as disastrous as, as child pornography and these poor children who are the victims of that and our inability to support those kids. Um, that's where the lack of accountability comes in because who's setting the standard about child protection online, as you mentioned? Um, it's very worrying. It's, it's very, very disturbing. And I think that sort of links to the next, I suppose it's a comment in a way, as more than a question, which is I've heard, as others have, that the big tech people in Silicon Valley in California protect their own children from becoming captured by technology and using social media platforms and some of the more addictive aspects of technology use. So they understand how dangerous it is potentially. It's a complete double standard. So they're exploiting the vast public out there while protecting their own sort of little network, the network of their own family and, and, and connections and so on. How do you think we should respond to that? Or who is responding to that? I mean, it's one of the most horrendous double standards that one can possibly imagine. Absolutely. And the reason, part of the, the reason that that has been the case is because the developers there have visibility over what has been developed in these platforms to encourage ongoing user engagement. We know some of these now. So we know, for example, that red receipts in Instagram and Messenger have actually been added for the 
purpose of invoking a sense of responsibility, social responsibility back to the person who you're engaging with. So if I know that you've read my message and you haven't responded, that that creates a social awkwardness. So then you feel that you have to respond to me because I've read it. Or Instagram, for example, have historically um, given delayed notifications. So for example, if I post up a picture on Instagram and 50 people like it, they usually do notifications in batches. So I actually only get told about the first 25 people, even though 50 people have liked it. And then the next day I get told about another 10 people because it encourages me to visit the platform again and again and again, even though I actually got them all at the same time. So these types of functionalities are built into these platforms to drive use of the app in an ongoing way. And so if all of these are done as a direct manipulation of human behaviour, then it's ethically and morally irresponsible, which is why a lot of these developers come out and say, no, I wouldn't let my child use that because they know that they're direct attempts to capture human attention. It comes back down to the question of who's holding these platforms accountable because unfortunately they're driven more by their consumer model than they are by any sort of regulatory body that says you need to be ethical in the way that you design your platforms, particularly when you know that there's a big user base of young people. But no one is enforcing that and that becomes part of a bigger problem. I, I, I mean, it is absolutely huge. And that also links in with my next question, which we've touched on as well a a bit, which is how parents can set limits for their children with respect to technology use um, and the undermining of appropriate parental authority. Do you have any suggestions about that? Yeah, I do. I think, first of all, I would always say to parents, I find that parents provide access to technology to kids and teenagers with good intention. But the minute that there is resistance from kids about, oh, I don't want that or I can't use my phone or someone else gets this and I don't, that parents become, their assertiveness drops. And so they usually relinquish on a lot of these, these good intentions that they started out with. So my first point to parents is, it is our job as parents to stick with the rules and limitations that we have set because we have set them for a very good reason. So don't lose sight of that because your child disagrees um, is the first point just to think about. It will happen that a child will go, you won't let me use TikTok, but everybody else at school has it. It is so common. First of all, that's probably not true. But secondly, remember why you set those limitations in the first place because they're really important. But then otherwise, from a practical perspective, I always recommend a model that I call the ABC model. So when you try to ensure that your child is as cyber safe as possible, you'd follow these steps. A stands for access. So making sure that the child's access on their device is actually safe. So you've set up the actual device itself with with appropriate settings for the child's age. That could be the settings that are built into the platform itself, which is adequate generally for primary age children unless you have a particularly tech savvy uh, child and then maybe not but otherwise there are paid products that you can use the parental control tools that are inexpensive and are brilliant and allow you as a parent the ability to block access to really inappropriate things like pornography or gambling websites but then also choose when your child is going to have access to TikTok or Instagram, it could be an hour a day that you set these limits, it will turn off the device at nine o'clock at bedtime or whatever the case is. So you have remote control over the actual device to ensure safety, but also regularity of use. The B stands for boundaries. So when you are allowing your child to use social media or technology or whatever the case is, that you have a very clear uh approach to what you expect your child's behaviours to be online, but also around their technology use. So I always recommend a digital contract for kids, usually up until the age of 15. It can be a verbal conversation if needed. But you need to establish what your expectations are with their online behaviour, but also how you engage with them in technology. And what I mean by that is you need to be very clear with your child and say something along the lines of, I will be checking your social media accounts or I will be taking your phone on a weekend, whatever it is that you as a parent decide is the right thing to do. But be clear on your expectation because a child will feel like you're spying on them if you're looking at their social media accounts and you haven't told them. 
But actually, you should tell them. It's also your role as a parent to supervise what they're doing and it's totally okay. But it also provides an opportunity for you to have a conversation with your child about why. Why is it important that I'm going to check your social media accounts? It's not because I don't trust you and it's not because I think that you're a bad kid. It's because technology or social media provides an opportunity for amazing things to happen, but also some problematic things. And it's my job as your parent to help you work through all of those things. So if I don't understand what's going on, then I can't do that. So explain why. Don't just do something, but explain why, which then is sort of leads me to my next point is C, stands for communication. To talk with your kids about their experiences online often. It makes sense, education, but my suggestion for parents is don't just tell your kids what to do don't say things like don't have don't accept follow requests from people you don't know because it's a very it's that's not communication that's me imposing a rule and we miss the opportunity then for education so what I'd suggest instead is say what do you think is safe and unsafe about a stranger following you online because what that is is encouraging the learning and it's also supporting your relationship because it's not so you know one way because I'm just telling you what to do it's not always possible but where you can entering into communication like that is a way to teach kids how to be positive digital citizens instead of just dictating how and when they should use their device and 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 that's kind of it coming from you so access boundaries and communication and reinforcing those three elements as needed but certainly communication should be a regular ongoing um, attempt at engaging kids in this area. I think that's a fantastic summary. I mean, I, I think parents will find that, and, and professionals will find that so useful, and you, you put it so extremely well. I think one of the issues often is that parents need the time to do that, mm-hmm. and they have to, and it has to be done, as you say, on a repeated basis. It's not a one-off and then you never have to do it again for the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. It's something you have to follow through. And it also means that I think two things. One is that parents themselves are sometimes obsessed with technology, cannot get off their phones or games or whatever it is. So mm-hmm. I think one of the one of the dilemmas, it seems to me, is that the area of entertainment for children and parents has become flattened out you know, the, the hierarchy, if you like, is no longer there. So the sorts of toys and interests that a child may have had, which would have a generation ago or more been different from parents, it's now that they now share the same thing. Yeah. And, and that's one of the problems, I think. And so the child can accuse the parent of being obsessed with their phone or their whatever their, uh, their game or whatever they're looking at. And the parent can also be quite happy to use technology as a babysitter or a child sitter or a, or a way of, of getting on with what they want to do. And so that's, I think it, it sort of ties in with some of the, the, the struggles that parents have. And I think particularly during COVID where people, you know, when they've had to teach their children at home, that would have been an enormous struggle. Um, but I just wonder as a last question, and I, we've, again, we've touched on this a bit, is the the access to pornography, I mean, pornogra- pornography has always been around, but um, the extent to which even young children can access pornography, and I think the very disturbing notions about girls, their idea about their bodies, um, the, the, the sexting that goes on, I, I have to say I find it very, very disturbing and, you know, as an old women's liberation person, <laughs> I feel like saying, how did it all come to this? You know, how is it that girls have gone back in time, as it were, and can treat themselves so badly and go along with anything like this? It seems it's, it's, it's very disturbing and very disturbing for boys as well who think that, that pornography is sex or they yeah. would expect that sort of sexual experience with girlfriends and so on mm-hmm. and I, I just wonder what your thoughts are about that yeah look I, I have a lot I think it's the minute my experience is the minute you mention the word pornography with parents it's it's confronting and they stop listening so first of all it's not that hard to deal with if you actually take proactive steps right there's there's two 
two, when it comes to pornography, two things we need to think about. One is kids and one is teenagers. Or a better way to think about it is kids or teenagers who come across pornography accidentally and the ones who are searching for it. The ones who are searching for it is a different topic. So let's focus on the accidental, which unfortunately is usually young children. A lot of parents, when they give their um, kids access to a device, do not consider safeguarding against access to pornography for young children because we know that generally they are not looking for it. But we know in Australia that the average age of exposure to pornography is 11. That's the average age, which means that there are a substantial amount of kids who are younger than that who are being exposed. The research suggests the vast majority of young children who see pornography online do so not because they were looking for pornography, but because of Google search terms and inappropriate pop-ups that come up on free gaming websites. They aren't looking for it, but I cannot tell you how many schools I've been in. There's always the same anecdote that comes up. A school will have me come in and and deal with a, a sort of a crisis situation because what has happened is there has been a child in let's just say year three is a really common one, so a seven to eight-year-old, who has really liked cats. And so the search term that they have looked up, you can imagine, is pussy cats or just pussy. They are not getting images of cats. And then kids are inherently curious for something that they weren't expecting and they click through and all of a sudden they're exposed. It is not the child's fault that they have come up with that content. Um, or, unfortunately, there is some malicious people who try to expose children to this type of content. So they will embed pornographic videos in the middle of YouTube videos that could be about Peppa Pig. And so the audio is the same, but the visual is not. So the point being for parents, that is easily dealt with by doing two things. Very, very simple. One is turn on Google Safe Search on your any child, any device that your child is using. It is simple. There are three steps. And what that means then is Google knows not to bring up inappropriate pictures. If I look for pussycat, I'm going to get pictures of, of cats. That's what I'm guaranteed to get. Um, And then you can also, with younger kids, keep kids on YouTube for kids because it's a more appropriate platform. And then in terms of the game, inappropriate pop-ups that come up on gaming websites, you can download something called Adblock on a computer. Again, it's free and it stops that that content from popping up. I have then taken steps to minimise the chance that my child is inadvertently exposed to pornography. And I always tell parents, please do this as young as three because if your child is using even your own device and they use Siri which they love, Siri will also bring up inappropriate search terms as well because Siri is just a a conduit to Google. So make sure that that's turned on, very easy. With older teenagers who are actually looking for it, we need to have conversations about the themes that are in pornographic videos. You can use parental control tools to block pornography, which I do recommend, absolutely. But also it's kids we know, It's I think in Australia 98% of kids have seen pornography by 15. So even if you've protected your own device, a lot of kids do show each other pornography. It's going to happen. But the conversation is really important to address some of the very harmful themes that we see in pornographic videos. And, and Ruth, you're sort of talking about, you know, I, I can't believe that women are still going through this. It's it's true. The pornographic videos at the moment are so, they're free, first of all. A lot of parents think that they're not, that you can't have access to them. That's not the case. There are you know, the major porn sites are all free um, or they have a free component, I should say. But there was some research that came out and I can't remember the specific stats off the top of my head, but it was over 95% of videos that had that displayed violence towards women was met with a pleasure response. And I think it's up of 75% of, the, of pornographic videos on major um, websites are, have a violent component in nature. So I think... What is that telling boys and girls about violence in sexual relationships? That not only is it, is it common and acceptable, but also that it's positive. And what porno, pornographic videos in particular lack is the context around the sexual exchange. Was consent given? Was there a conversation about whether or not that was wanted or not? Was it talked about? Of course, pornography is not going to show that conversation. But that is an important conversation that it would need to be had, particularly in, re- in regards to, to violent actions in, in a sexual encounter. So it sends these messages to, to young people about very skewed sexual relationships and really 
undermines what we would otherwise consider a, a healthy, respectful, consensual sexual relationship. If we're not talking to kids about this as parents, as educators, then that's what they're going to believe to be true. And that's a scary uh, world for them to be living in. I, I totally agree. I mean, you put it so very eloquently, uh, Jordan. I think the message that seems to come out of our conversation is that parents have got to take the, uh, the you know, they've got to remove curtains from their eyes and they've got to open their ears and they've really, they can't be living in denial and they have got to be involved, they've got to be active, they've got to be interactive and they've got to be very communicative with their children and young people. And they can't make an assumption that um, it's just going to happen automatically or the school will deal with it or the teachers will deal with it or the sex education class is going to deal with it. It really comes down to parental responsibility and interaction with children and young people and, and really rightly so. And I mean, hopefully that will move into a greater sort of community um, initiative um, I mean, it's almost like a version of the Me Too movement. You know, it's like the Child Too movement and the Parent Too movement that has to happen mm. here, yeah. really in terms of, of, of protection and, and really um, getting people to, be, to take this seriously and, and not really not be in denial. So thank you so much, Jordan. It's been a, a fascinating, um, uh, eye-opening <laughs> experience talking to you and and you're obviously enormously well informed so thank you so very very much you're very welcome Ruth thank you so much for having me along hello this is Dr Ruth Schmidt-Nevin again I hope you enjoyed the podcast you may be interested to know about my audio trainings based on the many trainings I have run throughout Australia and overseas. These include training on relationships, attachment and the brain, time-limited psychodynamic psychotherapy and skill building in therapeutic work. You can access the details of all my trainings on my website, which is at www.centerforchildandfamily.com. That's A-N-D, so www.centerforchildandfamily.com. Thank you.